You're in the water loop. Hi, this is Travis with Waterloop. Water conservation is very important to me. I bet it is to many of you as well. That's why I have high Sierra showerheads in my house, and I'm really happy that they're a supporter of this podcast. They carry the EPA WaterSense label for efficiency, and they use 40% less water than conventional low-flow showerheads. The model I use runs at only a gallon and a half per minute. And because of their unique nozzle design, patented, that nobody else has, it maximizes efficiency of water and energy, but doesn't compromise on performance. You still get a very strong shower. Use promo code WATERLOOP for 20% off at HighSierraShowerHeads.com. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop. Welcome to Waterloop. This is Travis. Going to talk in this episode about rural communities, and I'm really excited to be joined by Nathan Oli. He is CEO of Rural Community Assistance Partnership. Nathan, I'm glad we could connect for this. I appreciate the opportunity to be on with you, Travis. Looking forward to the conversation. Yeah. Before we dive into the issues a bit, uh, Rural Community Assistance Partnership, what are you guys? So Rural Community Assistance Partnership, or RCAP for short, uh, we're actually a network of not, a national network of nonprofit partners. We were founded about 45 years ago with the premise of helping rural and tribal communities with access to safe drinking water uh, and, and sanitary wastewater disposal. We also, over the years, have evolved to, to include work around economic development and entrepreneurship. We do some work around disaster recovery, really anything focused on building capacity at the local level. And we do that through our, through our network. We've got six regional partners across the country folks in every single state and territory that every single day are working in communities directly to try and help them build their capacity around a, a variety of issues in the water sector, uh, all focused either on technical, managerial, or financial issues uh, at the local level. Great. I think we'll dive into a little bit of those workings as we go along here for sure. But um, rural America, you know, I, I think with the way the media is set up and, and so many of the different issues are so much focus on our urban areas and our and the suburbs, right? Um, and, and sometimes rural America gets forgotten a little bit, I think. Um, how, would, how do you describe rural America? And then what are maybe some of the misconceptions, but some of the, um, conversely, some of the realities about rural America that you've learned? Yeah, well, the first thing I always tell anybody when talking about rural is if you've been to one rural community, you've been to one rural community. Hmm. It is not a monolith. It is not uh, a place where you can just apply stereotypes or uh, a specific issue or focus onto that one rural area. Every area, just like in urban and, and larger cities, uh, there's complexity to each area. There's diversity uh, to each rural community that you're in. Each region of the country obviously has its own specific assets and resources that they draw upon, but every rural community at its heart is a place where people want to make a good living. They want to live uh, a happy and, and, and free life, and they want to be able to do it uh, in their own way. Uh, and so they can build upon the opportunities in those communities, but they really want to make sure that they have those opportunities, not just for themselves, but for their families in, in future generations, to make sure that they're building a foundation that uh, allows for, for opportunity, that allows for economic mobility uh, for folks that, that stay in those communities. And they also wanna make sure that the, the humbleness, that the character of, of the place stays true to what it is and what it has always been. 
That doesn't mean that they're not innovating and there's not new things happening because every single day there are new things happening in rural communities. I tell people innovation is at the DNA, is in the DNA of rural communities because when you have less people or less resources or less markets to drive from, you have to be innovative. And to make sure that that opportunity exists requires innovation at every level uh, in rural communities. And so uh, it's definitely not a monolith. It definitely changes and looks different. The people are different. The culture is different, just like you would have in any large community. Uh, some of the issues they confront are very similar to what you would see in cities. And capacity, I think, is is that fundamental issue that you see in, in most distressed areas across the country. Uh, and there are certainly rural areas that are thriving and doing incredibly well. And there are also, just like in cities, areas that are struggling and, and have dealt with historic inequities that have made it really difficult for, for the folks in those areas. Yeah, I you know over the past several decades, right? There's been kind of, and or maybe more three, four, five decades, right? There's kind of a uh, it's gotten tougher in a lot of parts of rural America um, as things have kind of moved towards cities, and some of these smaller towns have been left behind, if you will. And um, but you're saying there's a there's a lot of that, but there's also places that are that are still doing doing well, right? Absolutely. There's there's a ton of small places, small rural and tribal areas across the country that are doing really well. Now, COVID obviously has had a significant impact as it has across any community across the country. Uh, and one of the things we worry about is the ability of, of any community really to respond to COVID and to make sure that the future generations have the pieces in place they need to be successful. But there is incredible opportunity. And I think COVID in some ways has actually driven more people back to rural areas. They've figured out that they can work from home where there's broadband access. And, and obviously broadband is one piece of rural that is a, a particularly difficult conversation. But where there is broadband, where there's a quality of life already established, creates an opportunity for people to think about what are the next five, 10, 15 years of their life and where they wanna spend the majority of their time as they look, look to their future. Yeah. Um, any idea of what the population is of the U.S. that lives in a rural area versus a, a urban suburban area? Putting you on the spot with a statistics question here. I, I didn't look it up. I should have. So part of the difficulty there is how you define rural. Hmm. Um, you know, I think that's a question that has continued to evade us, especially from a policy perspective. Even if you look at the federal levels, different federal agencies and even different programs within the same federal agency define rural a little bit differently. And what we typically say is about one-fifth of the nation's population lives in rural communities across the country. Okay. And I, I bet conversely, like 80% of the land in the U.S. is considered- Exactly right. right. It's like- it's Exactly like right. Absolutely. Like that. You fly, you, you think there's so much development, and there is, right? Like uh, D.C. area, just crazy, and all these sprawling suburbs. But take a plane flight and fly over the country, and it's, uh, it's, it's wonderful to see there's a lot of open space <laughs> out there. Absolutely. So. Yeah. Absolutely. There's a lot of a lot of great natural resources that are out there that uh, that rural communities are both utilizing for recreation and fun, but also for for work. Mm. So challenges with water in rural America. Uh, I know that they are many and varied. Um, could you talk a little bit about the the water situation? So I, I always start this conversation with a little context. So there's approximately 150,000 public water systems across the country. 97% of those systems cover communities of 10,000 or less. And 82% of those uh, systems cover communities of 500 or less. And so we're talking about you know, an incredible amount of really small communities being served by, by public water systems. That in and of itself brings some challenges, um, but also obviously opportunity. It means that 
those water systems play an incredibly important and large role, especially in the smallest of small communities. Uh, it also means that there's capacity issues at the local level in many of these communities. If you're a community of 500, uh, you're probably supporting any kind of debt service that you have on those water systems directly with, uh, you know, hopefully some grants, depending on what your income level is in the community, but also obviously by the rates that you're paying. And when you have 500 people supporting a system, it's a lot different than 500,000 people supporting that system. And so, you know, we see some inequities in in the percentage of everyone's of a rural families pay that goes into paying those water rates uh, that that maybe look a little bit different than they do in larger communities, which number one has an, an outcome that is really difficult, especially in those most vulnerable populations where there's low income communities, where there's historic inequities uh, that make make things difficult for systems to continue to upgrade the infrastructure, ensure that that the access is there, but not even the access, maybe more importantly, the affordability of that access. Um, you know, with that many systems across the country, there's an incredible need for the work that we do. We do we provide technical assistance and training. So we're on the ground in communities with systems, helping them build their technical, their managerial or their financial expertise. And that can mean anything from helping an operator with their training or continuing education credits uh, to a local mayor or city council or water district understanding their own responsibilities with a water system, or it could mean helping a community actually access finances, you know, helping to apply for a loan or a grant for federal resources or talk to a private sector funder uh, to find financial resources. We, we are there for that full spectrum of opportunities. And there's definitely a need across rural areas, especially given that so many of them serve small populations where, number one, you have less rates, but you also obviously have less people to draw from to build out that expertise from the workforce side. And this is why I guess there's challenges at times, even with drinking water, with complying with the Safe Drinking Water Act, right? It's just the resources, the size of the staff, and and the kind of those things you outlined. So it's it's a really important point to to make here. So clearly, most of the compliance issues that you see, as far as total numbers, come from small communities. But that's also because 97% of those systems come from communities of 10,000 or less. We actually did some research and studying of the SIDWIS data that comes from EPA on compliance, and it shows that small systems actually, from a health-based violation standpoint, have a smaller percentage overall, comparatively to larger systems. Now, the compliance and monitoring and, and those things that are kind of capacity issues, uh, there's a slightly higher percentage for small systems. But when you look at health-based violations, the smaller the system actually, the less from a percentage standpoint that you see those health-based violations. Well, that's uh, very important clarification and facts and stats to bring to that really, really, really great point. Um, what about, you, you touched on the number of systems there are, right? And so uh, one of the big topics these days, and I think it's continuing, it's gathering momentum is the idea of regionalization or consolidation or however you want to phrase it. Um, love for you to kind of explain what that means and maybe if you guys have a position on it or what you're hearing from the communities you work with. Yeah. Regionalization is an incredibly important topic, especially these days. And, and COVID even has been maybe more important, quite frankly. You know, for us, uh, we define regionalization very broadly. We never start the conversation with consolidation. Number one, it's, it's a word that immediately puts walls up uh, for folks. And it's also not always the best course of action for, for a community. And so for us, 
regionalization is a spectrum of opportunities. It could be anything from sharing the cost of a water operator across a couple communities or sharing the cost of a back-end accounting system across a couple communities, all the way to things like joint power agreements or even physical connection of pipes. We always take the approach that we start locally and it's got to be local decisions that drive these conversations. We are not a membership organization. We are an organization that supports communities and, and really helps to push forward their own vision. And so we can play a really integral role as kind of a third party facilitator of these conversations. We don't have skin in the game. We don't have an outcome that we're specifically driving towards. We want to find outcomes that benefit multiple communities and ensure that those conversations are happening in a way that's productive for both communities. You know, oftentimes it can be something as small, and this is really small in some areas, uh, but things like a, a high school football rivalry or a local political rival uh, that comes between communities having productive conversations. And so we can be a third party mediator, facilitator in those conversations. We can help educate communities on what all the opportunities around regionalization might be. We can also help on the advocacy side of helping states and, and federal uh, policymakers understand how do you incentivize more of, of regionalization opportunities. We think it's really important, not just in the water sector, but in the economic development sector and others, to think about collaboration instead of competition. We're not at a point anymore where we, where we can continue to think about competing with our neighbors. We have to understand that there are resources in other communities that can be useful, that what benefits us also benefits those around us, and where we can find opportunities to work collaboratively, to build some economies of scale, to ensure that we've got the sustainability of our systems in place. Uh, it's really important to have those conversations. COVID in particular has shown that. Uh, we did a survey back in May to, to start to understand some of the implications for small, small rural and tribal areas uh, from COVID. One of the most striking pieces to that was that of those that responded, 41% indicated from their water or wastewater system that they were using a single full-time operator or less. So it could be a part-time operator, it could be a volunteer, uh, you know, it could be a contract operator. But 41% were using one full-time person or less, which means that if that operator or that operator's family got sick, there was no one in the community there that could actually run and operate the system. And so those that had started conversations with communities around them that might have uh, an emergency uh, agreement in place where they you know, can swap and, and utilize one another's operators uh, really were at a, a strong benefit, uh, not just from a workforce standpoint, but obviously other financial implications. But it's really important to think about, okay, if something happens, if, if Johnny or Alice gets hit by a bus tomorrow, how do we make sure the system is sustainable, that it's operated in a way that is effective, that continues to provide access to safe drinking water? And how do we make sure that we are starting to try and think about the next generation of operators that need to come up the pipeline uh, to fill those those gaps as, as we see a, a really pretty robust number of, of folks that are going to retire out in the next 10 years? Yeah. All right. I, I understand that you guys are kind of third uh, neutral on the regionalization. I'm curious, though, what you're hearing out there from from communities. You know, are you hearing more just curiosity and interest? Are you seeing uh, people trying more kind of collaborative approaches out? So we're definitely starting to see a lot more of collaboration. The interesting thing, a lot of this, I think, centers around language. Um, there are a number of communities that are collaborating and building regionalization partnerships that don't even understand that they're doing it. 
right? It's intuitive in the way that they work, the way they operate, the way that they think about the communities around them. And when you start to talk about what regionalization can be in this larger spectrum, they go, oh, yeah, I'm doing that. You know, John and I have coffee every week and we talk about our systems or, uh, you know, Jonesville down the road uh, and, and, and we share the cost of our water operator because we couldn't afford a full-time operator ourselves. There are a number of communities that, that are already doing this. They just don't think about it as regionalization or regional collaboration or partnerships or, or consolidation. I mean, language plays a really strong piece to that. We also have seen, because we did some research, um, we did a research paper, which we launched in March, specifically on uh, helping to educate communities on what regionalization is and the lessons learned from communities that have done this. Um, and we put together kind of the 10 best lessons learned for regionalization and, and started to disseminate that information out. And as we did that, we heard from communities, oh, yeah, I, I take that approach. I know that I've done this or we're doing this. Um, and so it, it's really about educating and communicating effectively about what regionalization is helping people understand you know, where they're already doing it, where there are opportunities to take a very small step to build into that and ensure that people understand that, that it is not uh, a way to give up power or give up authority in a community, but to really create partnerships that help build upon your own assets and, and really benefit you and, and the larger region around you. And I imagine uh, you referenced coronavirus, and I imagine that the past six, seven months have have caused some people to take a different look, an, another look, or a deeper look at like how we can partner with others and and have some some uh, backup, if you will, on, on these areas. For sure, it's it's been a huge component of of the work um, that we're seeing on the ground. And, we've been and, doing this work for for more than a decade, so we've we we know what's happening. We see it. We're we've, we're helping with it, but we're hearing more and more from communities about their desire to do more of it, to think about different ways to create their own resilience and sustainability around issues with COVID. Um, and the survey that we did really helped to shine a light on, on some of those partnerships that are happening. And we know that some, uh, you know, city and state budgets are going to be really tough uh, because of what's happened this year, you know, into next year, right? There's, there's going to be long-term effects here. Um, and that just makes it tougher on, on uh, you know, water resources for sure. It's, it's something that most people in their everyday life don't think about, right? They go to their tap and they turn the water on and it's there and it's fine. You don't think about it until there's an issue, a discoloration or a smell or what have you. Um, one of the biggest things that we've been pushing in relation to COVID is, is a better understanding of how these systems are financed and funded. Um, you know, as you look at the emergency relief programs that are available through the federal government at this point in time, all of them are specifically focused on infrastructure. So you have an infrastructure project or you need to, to upgrade your system in some way, shape or form, you can go and get access to grants and loans and, and really good interest rates. But there's nothing right now that helps address the revenue losses that systems are taking on as a result of COVID, where families and businesses either, you know, in some cases, businesses have shut down, but in some cases they don't have the resources or families don't have the resources to pay their bills. So these systems are tapping into their reserves, and in small systems in particular, those reserves tend to be pretty small. They don't have a huge rate base to pull from uh, and to build up. And so, number one, you're really crippling a number of, of systems in drawing down those reserves. Our survey showed that about 31% said they couldn't live in the current conditions for more than six months uh, based on revenue losses. And there's no real alternative right now, at least from federal resources, to pay back those O&M costs, the revenue losses that these systems are having. They would have to take on more debt or more grants for new projects, but not to backfill what they lost. And so we've spent a lot of time on the Hill here in D.C. trying to help educate policymakers about 
that specific need. There's also conversations around water affordability and ensuring that that especially those low-income populations can continue to afford their water and how do we balance that, um, ensure that systems have the revenue that they need to support the system, but that we're not putting an undue burden on, on the most vulnerable uh, of, of our of our residents. Um, and so there's really complex issues here. The other big piece of this that I think no one is talking about yet is that not only are they sustaining these revenue losses, but it means they're going to defer maintenance, defer future projects that they were planning on doing. No one's willing to take more debt on right now. Even though interest rates are so low, they're losing all this revenue. And so there's there's not a desire to take on new debt. And there's definitely not capacity to even address the ongoing issues they were hoping to address this current year. And so we already had a major deficit as far as infrastructure needs. Uh, you know, I think EPA study said there was 770 million just for small systems, 10,000 or less uh, over the next 25 years. That's only going to be compounded by this because those projects that were slated to start this year or even early next year uh, are going to be pushed off. Mm. All right. Well, we've, I think you've done a great job framing some of the big challenges and problems. Let's pivot to solutions and successes here because uh, like you guys have been working for a while. You work all around the country. Um, and so I'd love to hear some of the things that, um, that have been some of your favorite stories, some of your favorite approaches, most successful projects that maybe also highlight the way you guys work. Yeah. So it's, it's really interesting. There's a ton of great stories out there uh, in small communities. And you know, number one, the issue is those communities either don't understand how to tell their story or don't have the capacity to tell their own story. And we we feel that's a really key component of our work is to help raise the voices of those communities, to tell the positive stories, to talk about the innovation that's happening at the local level, to ensure that people understand that that there are really great things happening at the local level that are ensuring that they're safe, affordable access to, to safe drinking water. Um, you know, one great story I tell both shows the complexity and the difficulties in around workforce, but also shows the innovation and the, the can-do attitude uh, that you see in rural. So in, in a small community of about 350 people in, in rural Georgia, uh, town of Ogilvy Shores, uh, there was an, a longtime operator of the system uh, who tragically passed away one day, unexpectedly passed away, and there was no one in the community who knew how to run that system other than his wife, who had gone to help him run the pumps a couple times. Um, and so at the age of 63, she volunteered to go get certified as a water operator. So she went back, got, got certified, recruited four of her best friends uh, to do the same. So there's now three of them that are certified operators for this town of 350. Mm -hmm. And the Golden Girls of Albany Shores are now running this system. And it shows like the can-do attitude of rural communities. People just step up, right? I mean, you might see uh, a local mayor who's also – a farmer who's also a fireman, who's also the water operator. Folks in rural communities just naturally step up and step in to roles. And, and water operators and water systems are such a critical part of the infrastructure and really, quite frankly, the quality of life in rural communities that we need to do a better job of telling the story of those operators. We need to do a better story of, of talking about the innovations that drive uh, new infrastructure and, and certainly expanding uh, water access and affordability in communities. Um, and so the, the stories like the Golden Girls of Ogilvy Shores are the ones I love telling because the, these are people that just step up to do good work and they're they're really providing excellent service to their community. There's, their community continues to have safe drinking water at an affordable rate. And it's because of people that are willing to step up and step in to really important positions and, and roles across their community. 
Well, it's tough to top that one. That's that's just great. I can you can visualize those ladies running running the plant there. <laughs> it's good stuff. Um, you mentioned how you you have kind of six parts of the country divided up, and then you've got you partner with a lot of different organizations. Like you partner with uh, with NGOs, or you partnering. But basically, that's the deal. And then you guys work with the federal government. You work with states, and you're kind of funneling programs, grants, projects, and trying to kind of just be an air traffic controller of sorts? Is that? Yeah. I mean, the way that we operate, so we have our six regional partners. They are the folks that are on the ground every day on the water, water, wastewater side. Those folks, they're independent nonprofits, but we at the national office, the RCAP national office facilitate the grants. So we work on all the grant proposals. We manage the grants. We ensure the financial aspects of that are all in place. But then we, you know, we pass a lot of those funds directly to those six regional partners to actually do the work on the ground, the boots on the ground. There's across those six partners, there's more than 250 what we call technical assistance providers that are working in communities, both rural and tribal, on, on water issues every single day. Um, we also, though, at the national office, do advocacy work. So we're working on the Hill. We're working at state legislators to try and help policies that are, you know, effectuate change for rural rural water systems across the country. Uh, we do research. We have a research team uh, that is focused on both specific data projects to help kind of set the, the scope and the scale of, of what's happening in the world, but also to talk about the impact of the work that's happening. We've got a communications team, which is all about storytelling and helping to raise the voices of, of those communities. And then we also build partnerships. We're, we're the Rural Community Assistance Partnership. It's really important to us that we live and breathe our name and our mission. And so we've got our six existing partners that are doing this incredible work, but we also build partnerships with other organizations. If there's if there's a need in a community that we hear about and we can't address it ourselves, we want to build a partnership to bring those skills or those resources or expertise into the community through other partners. So every single day I'm having another conversation with some other organization doing fantastic work. Sometimes they're specifically focused on rural, sometimes they're not. But there are skills and expertise that we can tap into. We can leverage the work that we're doing in really unique ways and build partnerships that, that continue to serve those, those really rural and tribal communities across the country that we want to serve. Yeah, and, and what federal and on the water front, which federal agencies you guys mostly work with? USDA is big, right? They're big with the USDA and EPA are both our, our two largest partners. Um, okay. We we do several different projects with USDA. The main one is the technical assistance on the on the water wastewater side. We also have a grant specifically focused on working with indigenous populations. Another one focused on the colonial communities on the southern border. Um, and then in EPA, we have several technical assistance programs, uh, one specifically on water, one specifically on wastewater, one that focuses on managerial and financial aspects of, of water systems, and then another one on private wells, where we're actually working with private well owners to try and ensure that those wells are safe and that they continue to, to both operate and produce safe drinking water. Yeah, I think that's a sometimes forgotten or forgotten in the media. You don't see it as much, right? People talk about the quality of your drinking water because this utility did this and that. Um, but I, I, it's forgotten how many people are on private wells in this country. Yeah. Can I put you on the spot again? Do you have a stat on that in the top of your head? <laughs> I do not have that okay. stat readily available. My fault. Uh, I, it's an incredible I, need across the country, though, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I lived in Annapolis, Maryland on a well. You know, uh, yep. in, the ca in the capital of, of a state there. So um, it, it seems to me kind of that there's been a lot more chatter about rural America and and helping uh, and investing lately. Um, is it just because um, I'm tuning into that or there's more stories or is there some momentum that's kind of 
happening the past few years? So I think there's a little bit of each of those things. Okay. I think uh, organizations like us and many others that are doing great work in rural have been pushing hard to tell more stories and to, to really push on that national narrative that has been historically one of decline and decay and say, no, there's real innovation and, and interesting stories here. You just have to be willing to, to find them. And, and we help to find them for, for some of those outlets. But I also think from, from a policy perspective, uh, there's been a real focus on, on how do we think more holistically about rural communities? I think one of the difficult things, both for rural and urban areas, is that most of our funding programs are siloed into one approach or another. So you have a water issue here, and you have a broadband issue here, and you have a housing issue here. But you have to go to three different places with three different applications, and you've got to have the capacity to actually access, number one, understand that there's resources there. Number two, understand how to put together a good grant or loan application to access those resources. And number three, you know, it's tough to be competitive with larger communities in many of these these places. And so there's been a sustained effort from a policy perspective to create more opportunities and programs for rural. But there's also been a sustained push to say there is truly a connection between rural and urban places. Uh, we can't ignore the fact that they are interconnected, that for a long time, most of the resources that come into urban areas come from rural areas, right? And to understand that, that there's an interconnectivity there, there's an importance to both, right? It's not an either or, it's an and. And how do we make sure that we think about that? How do we make sure that we showcase and highlight that in the stories? We're actually doing a, a project in partnership with the National League of Cities right now, specifically focused on that interconnectivity and finding what are the indicators that showcase opportunities for more of that interconnectivity to happen. Um, so I think there's there's more of a willingness to think about rural, but there's also more of a willingness to have conversations about regional approaches and thinking about uh, the work collectively rather than apart. Yeah, and you know you've mentioned uh, telling the stories. You've mentioned that a lot, and uh, it yes, it's it's more hopeful and optimistic to share those stories, but it also provides uh, ideas for others, right? Like, hey, let's take this idea that they did in this place and let's copy it over here. Maybe twist, you know, turn it around a little bit for our community. But it provides templates and models for others. That's that's one of the great things about it. Well, Nathan, I uh, I appreciate the time and the perspective. Uh, yeah, so much. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. It's been a lot of fun. The Waterloop Podcast is brought to you by High Sierra Showerheads, the smart and stylish way to save water, energy, and money while enjoying a powerful shower. Use promo code WATERLOOP for 20% off at HighSierraShowerheads.com. You're in the Waterloop.